Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Today, uh, my guest is actually a partner and co-founder of Partner Trend Nation, which is an Amazon product company. And he's president and CEO of Channel Key, which is an Amazon agency. He's a member of the Forbes Council, a proud dad of twins, and a fellow scuba diver. So everybody, meet my guest, Dan Brownshire. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Oh, uh, great to have you. So last time we talked, you told me about a formula you created for something every company needs in the post-COVID world. So tell us what that formula is. Uh, Yeah, it's around building a a company culture in a remote environment. Wow. So uh, this is so key. So everybody's like, at this point, you know, we start another episode. Everybody's thinking, okay, we're going to hear all about Amazon, something secret, yeah. something. And then you, you hit me with this uh, remote company culture. What is that about? I mean, I can understand post-COVID companies are going remote. But tell, yeah. me, tell me, how do you do that and why you have to do it? Yeah, so... Uh, so to your point, Nick, yeah, we post COVID, we went, we went fully remote. Um, we were considering doing it prior to, uh, prior to COVID and then COVID kind of forced our hand and we haven't looked back. Um, and what's interesting about it is as I was thinking about kind of what we do and how we do it and why we do it, I was, it dawned on me that this is not necessarily even about being in a remote environment. Like this is what all companies should do, but I think it's, 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 uh, it takes a little bit more intention when you've got this uh, remote environment because you you can't you can't see your people you can't talk to them every day uh, you can't you can't run into them um, randomly throughout your day so so as, as I was trying to think about this what we do and and why I believe it's working uh, is is really three things um, we create we're very intentional uh, around creating connections. Okay. And so an example of that is every meeting we do is on teams, right? Zoom teams, right? Pick your, pick your platform. One of our requirements as a company for all meetings, internal meetings and external meetings is that you have your camera on. Okay. Because we want to see the nonverbal cues and nonverbal communication, right? Like I believe that's how you uh, that that's a fundamental way that people communicate together. And it's important to understand how people are doing, right? If you can see their face, if you can see what's happening in their background, uh, it gives you a better sense of where they're at, as opposed to just hearing their voice. So I'm going to share something with you. This is one of my favorite things. And in fact, I, you are so right. And, and, and I developed a rule uh, around this. <laughs> So there is something called 7% rule. Have you heard about it? No, I haven't. Okay. You're going to love this one. I'm I'm sure you're going to put this in your culture playbook. 7% rule was developed by a psychologist, I believe, uh, Dr. Mehrabian. You can look this up. I'm going to write that down. He says that 
he says that in communication between people, only 7% of the message is carried uh, through the words. 38% is carried in the tone of your voice. Yeah. 55% is in the body language. There you so go, Dan. Those three numbers, 7% words, 38% tone of your voice, 55% body language. So if you are resolving a conflict via email, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. good luck, right? Doesn't so, work. So I Doesn't have work. a rule myself uh, in my company is we do not have difficult conversations via text. We do not have difficult conversations via email exchanges. We do not have it on the phone. We do not have it on in audio. We have it on cap. Love the Nick. You're speaking my language, man. I mean, I now I've got actual data to back this up. Absolutely. I, I, I think I knew it, but I but now I now I can I can cite it, which is you important. Had, now you have science behind it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so what's the second thing? So we um, we're very much, and this is part of our culture. Um, we're, we, it's all about transparency for us. We're very transparent as a company with everything that's happening with our numbers. Okay. With our wins, with our losses, and we share all this with our team. Okay. So it's, again, we're not in the office. You can't see my body language as I'm walking around all day. Like you can't, you can't pick up on these cues as easily in this remote environment. So we, we've we taken our transparency to the next level uh, with, uh, with regards to sharing data with our team, right? We share our revenue, we share our profit, we share how we're performing to goals, uh, we show the numbers um, and we talk about it. Uh, every single quarter in our all hands meeting, we show the numbers. So this is not a controversial Territory, of course, uh, you know that already. Open book accounting, uh, so yeah. and everybody wants to know everybody else's salary. So uh, behind that, there are actually methodologies around how to do open book, how to be open book without yeah. really being open book, where nobody can say that oh, you know, you're not, you're just hiding it. Uh, but in fact, you you still disclose. So share with us some practical tips about how to be uh, open book. Um, let's see. So every single quarter we do an all hands meeting. Okay. And, and we do it remotely. Um, it's usually a two and a half hour, three hour meeting. Um, and we, we retrospect, we review the results of, of the prior quarter and we look at our goals for the upcoming quarter. Okay. And what are those results specifically? Is it revenue, profit? Yes. And Yes. Um, furthermore, we operate off a, a platform called EOS for our business. There's a book called Traction or a book called Get a Grip. Uh, and it's an operating system for entrepreneur, entrepreneurs to run their business. And so one of the, the elements there is uh, we set what are called rocks every single quarter. And rocks are goals or objectives that we want to achieve during that particular quarter. These aren't tasks. These are initiatives. And so we report on our productivity around our rocks. We show the rocks. These are the things that the leadership or the company is going to complete. And we show whether or not we completed those, those rocks. Okay. So, so, so there's that. Um, so, and these are initiatives that are moving the company forward. Okay. And so if I, if I back up a bit, 
We've got rocks for the year. We've got a three-year plan. And I, sh- we sh- I sh- personally share the three-year plan with every single employee within the first one to two weeks that they started our organization. Okay. So, th- so the rocks feed into the quarterly plan, to the annual plan, to the three-year plan. Okay. So we're transparent around our pro- uh, productivity um, uh, uh, around achieving those goals. We show revenue. We show profit to goal. We talk about our budget. If we create a second operating plan or a reforecast for the balance of the year, we share those numbers and we're reporting how we're doing against plan. Um, and we also, we have a huddle board, our KPIs that we track weekly as well that show how we're performing uh, to some very select KPIs that we think are important uh, that dictate the pulse of the business. So um, those are a few things that we do. And do you, this is, you know, when you mentioned EOS, that stands for Entrepreneur's Operating System, right? So that's right. why you're referring to That's so right. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, and by the way, uh, there is an organization called EO, Entrepreneur's Organization. Are you familiar yeah. with that? I'm familiar with it, yeah. Are Absolutely. you a member? I'm a member of Vistage. Um, okay. So similar, similar to EO, but... You know what, what us EOers call Vistage people? Tell me. Traders. <laughs> I've been in Vistage for eight years, Nick, I've, and I've met the EO people. I've talked to, I've, I've considered joining EO a couple of times, but yeah, uh, I've stuck with my, stuck with Vistage. Listen, you are, you are using the EO products, for God's sake, you should join me. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best of both worlds, Nick, best of both yeah. worlds. Well, uh, by the way, for any entrepreneur, I highly recommend one of these organizations. Vistage is great. EO is great. I'm just kidding, of course. So uh, anything that yeah. helps personal and professional growth. So, uh, and, you know, we have methodology. So, okay. So, uh, so you have connection, which means your communication, you want to see the person and open book, you align everybody. One question though, in that yeah. uh, open book, uh, or I should say transparency, yeah. How do you make sure the individuals, your team members' personal goals align with the company's goals? How do we make sure that the individual's personal goals align with the company goals? That's a good question, Nick. Um, my Where I go, my brain immediately goes towards is our, is our key values. Okay, so we hire um, to our values. And what happens, I believe, naturally, and maybe this is a blind spot, I'd have to think about this further because it's a really good question, is what happens is our people are fully aligned with our values. And we live them and we eat them and we breathe them every single day. And so by naturally what what is happening is there's there's innate alignment with how <clears throat> we operate the business because we operate it towards our values um and we're very again transparent with who we are as a business like we're trying to grow like we're trying to grow a company and grow it quickly and that creates its own set of challenges uh along the way and we we're very open about that we in the first two weeks of employment we share what our goals are what our three-year financial projections are and there's a lot of growth there and Mm -hmm. so we talk about the growth story um and then the foundation around of of our alignment on values uh i think innately aligns our people with 
um, kind of our objectives as a company and then their personal objectives. It just, it just works naturally. Now we, we talk, uh, you know, we review monthly and quarterly kind of, um, per EOS, right? We do the people analyzer and, and look to our people and see if they're aligning with our values. We do, we look at monthly accomplishments, we document them and we talk about goals. Um, but in general, I think we hire the right people and, and there's innate alignment that happens. Um, so that's my, that's my, that's my immediate reaction to your question, Nick. Yeah. So uh, this is one of the things that uh, in, in EO is a, is a big deal. And you, 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 had, you said the magic word, it happens during hiring. Now, uh, share with us some of your values. Uh, first of all, how many values do you have and how many values do you think an organization should have? Uh, we have six values. Um, and I, I don't know what the magic number is. Honestly, I, the Amazon's got their principles. I think there's like 12 of them, which seems like a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, and I don't quote me on that. It's something like 12. Um, we have six. So for me, they, it's not about how many you have or, um, it's just really about whether they're real or not. Like, is it wallpaper? How how you practice it, right? Uh, so, uh, we have an acronym. Ours is Oprah with two P's, O-P-P-R-A-H. It's its own everything. Positivity is a choice. Passion for growth. Uh, root the problem. Um, always delight. Uh, and honest, effective communication. Those are our values. Um, and so we we talk about them every single week. Okay. So, so opportunity, we- opportunity. And then. So own, own everything. Own everything. Uh, own everything. Positivity is a choice. Positivity. Uh, passion for, I think I misspoke because we just changed this one. Passion for innovation. Passion uh, for innovation. Root the problem. Always delight and honest, effective communication. Those are our values. And, and you, so, you obviously, those are things that you came up with, right? They've, they've developed over the years and they've changed over the years. So it's been, it's been input from me and our leadership team and our entire staff. So they've evolved. We changed two of them uh, this calendar year uh, and adjusted those. So, so would you recommend in an organization, the leader lays down or leader inspires people to develop the organization's values collectively? I think it depends on the organization. It depends on the structure. And ultimately, uh, it's a combination. It's a combination. I think the leader at times has to, because the leader's job in a lot of cases is to create the vision for the business, right? And in order to do that, you've, you've got to understand where the company is going uh, and, and, and maybe lay down some values that align with that, whereas some members may have a less clarity around the vision of the business. So I think it's a, it's a joint effort. You've got to get feedback from your people um, because sometimes the leader also isn't on the front lines and needs to know what's happening. So I think it's, it's a kind a combined effort, honestly, and it evolves over time. And if you're building the right teams and you're bringing on the right people, then naturally it, 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 it creates opportunities for change and for clarity around who the company wants to be. Yeah. And you talked about hiring, which is where it all happens. So tell us about some of your hiring practices. How do you go about it? And how do you know it's the right person? Um, So we're fans of, there's a book called The Who Book. 
um, which we're fans of. It's a it's the who hiring process. I can't remember the author authors off the top of my head, but we've got a very structured hiring process, um, and it's five parts. Um, and I'll just kind of talk through it uh, at a high level. The first first interview is a screen. It's a screen. It's a thirty minute phone call video where we're just asking very basic questions. Who are you? What do you want? What are your goals? Uh, and one of the key elements around the process is at every phase, we are, we are asking our, our, uh, prospects to self-evaluate themselves. Okay. And, and, and tell us who their previous bosses were. We want to know their names and we want to know how they believe their previous boss will, will rate them on a scale of one to five or one to 10 or whatever. And, and the idea around how we run this process is we close the feedback loop, right? So you tell us how you think your previous bosses will rate you and why. Tell us why. Um, and we ask the same question in a different way in the second interview. And we touch on it in the third interview. And so, and then we, we've, and then we follow up on that. At the very end, we check the references. We call the people they, they told us uh, were their previous bosses. And we ask their previous bosses the same exact question. And we see how their answers line up with what the what the prospect said. So we're we're checking for alignment, right? We're checking for um, awareness, mm-hmm. right? Awareness on the on the part of the candidate of themselves. Um, so so I, I kind of jumped ahead a bit. So we do a screen. We do then a, a second interview, which is called a top grading interview, where we're basically having the the candidate tell us everything they did. At their previous how job. Long, how long is that top grading interview? Hour sit interview, right? Hour, hour and a half. Hour, hour and a half, right? So we go job by job. Tell us what you did. Tell us your biggest wins, your biggest losses, your areas for right. Tell us what you did, right? So we're getting a sense of their technical abilities in a lot of cases, but the underlying thing we're we're always listening for are culture cues. Mm-hmm. right? Culture cues. Hey, my boss. So I had an issue with this and what, you know, so we're always just listening. And then the third interview we call the focused interviews where we're creating very specific questions for that candidate around topics we want to learn more about. If we heard something that they said in the first interview, we want to go deeper. We'll create questions around that particular point, right? Could be a culture issue. could be a technical question. It could be an experience issue. Um, and then what we do is we, uh, after that, they make it past that, 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 that focused interview, we put them in front of our team, right? So we've, we'll have a cohort of folks on the staff that represent different departments that will meet that individual for 30 minutes or an hour just to meet them. And that is a check, right? And what we say is, if I interviewed the individual with my head of service, um, I'm not going to be in that session, neither is my head of service. You're going to meet a completely different cohort of people on my staff. And you're going to, you guys are just going to talk. It's very unstructured. They're going to ask you questions. You're going to ask some questions. You're going to figure out if what I said or the things that I said are being also said by my staff, right? Is there, is there a discrepancy around what I'm saying or how we are as a company and what my staff is saying? Um, and they're going to do the same to you. So it's a check. It's a culture check, right? Does this, is there alignment here? Um, and then the last part is the reference check. So it's very structured. I've heard from candidates that it's long uh, and it takes time, um, but I'm okay with that. 
So tell me between these like phone call, first interview, second interview, and the third one, and and the reference check. Reference check is outside, of course. But um, do you have a best practice? How much space is best to put between interviews? Is it to is it good to rush it? If the candidate is available, you are available, or do you purposely delay, or how do you handle that? Yeah, my take, Nick, is um, especially today, the 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 hiring environment in the Amazon ecosystem is really hot. It's hot now. Maybe it's maybe 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 it's might have might have cooled down here in the last month or so, but uh, costs are going up, and there are uh, there there seems to be lower supply. There's the demand is exceeding the supply. So if I find somebody that I like, I like to move fast. Like I don't want to waste any time. And I tell them that it's like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move quickly. Right. So I, the last individual I hired um, is a uh, uh, head of our partnerships. We've got a partnerships division that we're looking for partners, right. Adjacent companies to help us and our clients. We, we went through the entire process in five days, right. We stacked the interviews day after day, after day, after day, we were available. She was available. I told her we're ready. We're ready to, we're, we're aggressively trying to fill this this position. We like you. And so we're going to move fast. And she was on board with it. So that's abnormal. That's abnormally fast. But I would say we try to get through the entire process in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And yeah. let's say that you completed the hiring and you decided, okay, I'm hiring this person. What happens after the hiring? Do you have an onboarding program or a process you follow? Yeah, we have an onboarding program. Um, so... Whoever is the hiring manager builds a training schedule. Training is usually about a month long. Uh, there's structured trainings throughout that. We send um, care packages prior to the the individual starting. So we're remote. So we send equi- we provide equipment. We provide shirts and you know channel key swag and these sorts of things. So uh, yeah, it's it's a very structured process. It's structured. There's probably some rooms for improvement. Honestly, room for improvement in that right now. Uh, but it is structured. Uh, we've got an SOP around it that we've developed. And are they working during the onboarding program or are they just being trained? A little bit of both. They're a little bit of both, right? It, and it depends on the role. It depends on the experience. You know, if we're hiring a, a, an Amazon marketer that's senior, that's done it before, uh, we might speed them up and train them and, and plug them in sooner. Uh, yeah. If it's somebody with less experience, we'll bring them along a little bit slower. So. I did some culture work uh, where I hired a consultant, a, a consulting firm, and they had two, three different guys, each one specializing in different things. And yeah. the main guy who basically drove the program, he said something to me that stuck with me. He said, companies who invest in onboarding their employees, their new hires, yeah. see their employee retention rate go through the roof, the yeah. increases are like you know several hundred percent. So they don't leave the company, and that's one thing. And the other thing is, he said, those companies who take onboarding seriously make onboarding the only thing that the employee has to do for a period of time. Doesn't mean that it has to be one week, one month. That's not, that's not what it means. It's yeah. the perception. It's the perception. It's the perception. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so what I did was, I would say to people, when you are hired, 
your first three days is onboarding. You come to work every day, but you're not doing any work. You are being okay. trained. And then I broke it down. Day one, train on how we make money. What is our business model? Who are key players? Just learn that. And then go hang out with the guys, do whatever. And then once you've taken enough of the material, go home. And second day, systems, strictly systems. Yeah. And learn the systems, the clicks and the how-tos, whatever. And then talk to everybody, hang out, then go home. Third day, it all comes together. And then we quiz. And then fill in the blanks. And day four, they start work. That's what I had put in place. That's quick, Nick. I, I'm thinking onboarding is like, it, like a month for us, right? Onboarding a new staffer takes a month. Uh, in my, in my head, but it's, uh, you know, it's probably more like two to two to three weeks. Well, what I did was, uh, I would call it training. So yeah. in your, in your first whatever period and, and I didn't make a rule because everybody was different because somebody who's senior, he doesn't want to, uh, he, he doesn't want to be told that he's going to be in training, but somebody who is junior, he doesn't mind. So that's why I didn't make rules. So I would say you are in training. Uh, you'll be in training in the first whatever, uh, but your first three days are your onboarding. You're going to be onboarded for you know who we are and how we do business and what we use in the process. It was just to create the perception. And yeah. Uh, so that's what it did. I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks, but uh, it's yeah. just uh, perception-wise, that's something that I did. One of the newer, one of the things we started doing, Nick. Sorry if you were want to move on to a different topic, just really quick is uh, we've implemented um, during onboarding for our new staff, like within the first 30 days, is our head of HR sets a time to meet with uh, every single new employee within the first 30 days for feedback. Like, how was your onboarding experience? Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you didn't like. And it's amazing. Like, (laughs) it's amazing the, the data points that we're getting to help us improve our process. Um, like we're very much about asking for feedback to our clients, to our staff along the way, but we weren't doing it in onboarding, uh, for whatever reason, we just, it was just a blind spot. And we, we started doing it recently and it's like, wow, like there's so much good information here that is helpful for us that we can use for the next individual. So fresh perspective, right. It's very valuable, fresh perspective. Very valuable. Yeah. 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 So, uh, great. So, obviously, this, especially for companies who are in technology space, remote is, is a no-brainer. But even other companies, they are, they are using this. And, of course, what lacks in a remote space is that connection. So, and so, you put premium on building culture and maintaining that culture and let the culture take hold of everything else, right? Yeah. For me, everything always boils, boils back to culture. Always. It was a Peter Drucker said a culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and I believe that in my heart, like I believe that is the truth. And if you can build a good team that is aligned culturally, you can do anything. Exactly. You can do anything. There is a gentleman by the name of John Daly. Uh, I don't know if you know John. He's very, uh, he's very uh, colorful character, put it that way. Uh, but anyway, he's very senior guy. He's basically a sales guy. But, but he builds teams, visionary, builds teams. And he uh, he does training and, and things like that. Uh, 
he's, he gave some numbers again. He said companies that focus on culture, they have like X percent more profitability, X percent more top line, X percent more yeah. employee retention, X percent more in stock value if it's a public company. So, yes. I mean, there's no question uh, culture increases value in, in every possible way. Yeah. And you know what? It, it, it's it's just more, it's a better environment. It's more fun. Yeah, it's more fun. I was going to say. Yeah, like we're spend all day together. Might as well, we might as well have fun while we're doing it, you know? Yeah. So combine culture with gamification of the operation. That's that. That's a winning combination. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly. Yeah, that, that's uh, Amazon's taking that gamification thing to the next level for sure. So yeah, there's elements to that. Yeah. So uh, now uh, that you mentioned the keyword Amazon, let's talk about Amazon. So you work yeah. with Amazon sellers. So uh, tell us what kind of companies are the kind of companies you deal with. Yeah, so we work with brands, uh, brands and manufacturers. So, do, uh, uh, our the value prop for Channel Key is is usually doesn't land with resellers, right? Or folks doing retail arbitrage. It's it's brand owners and manufacturers. So for us, uh, we're a full service agency. Okay, so typically what happens is our clients um, hand us the keys to their business. Um, and we've got pods or teams that will work on these businesses. And usually eight to nine individuals will touch a client account in a given month that have a specific job or a function. So we're doing graphic design. We're doing copywriting. We're doing account management. We're doing analytics, forecasting, full funnel advertising. So we're an Amazon verified partner. We've got our own DSP entity. So we're doing full funnel advertising uh, from product ads up to, up to DSP uh, uh, in display. Um, uh, it could be, uh, somebody on the, on our ops team working tickets behind the scenes it could be somebody pulling reporting. So, uh, we're a, f- a full, a full service agency. We also do full funnel advertising management as well. Um, and, um, our typical client profile, and this has changed, right? It's changed over the years. We've been doing this, uh, as a- officially as an agency since January of 2017, uh, but we spun out a trend nation, as you said earlier. So we were tinkering with this model in 2015, 2016. Um, today, our, our typical client profile is a brand owner manufacturer. We're generally category agnostic, okay? That is doing between one and 50 million a year on Amazon. So middle market, one to 50 million uh, per year, brand owner manufacturer. That's kind of our, our sweet spot right now. Mm-hmm. So- as far as someone who is looking to get into this, okay, how do they get to that one million level? What are some recommendations you would have? So you're saying uh, a somebody that wants to create a product business, yeah, on Amazon to get to a million. So let's see. Um, my my response and it. Uh, uh, comes from my experience. Okay, so I, I've I've co-founded a product business that started as private label, then started doing retail arbitrage, then started doing exclusive distribution, then went back to private label. Okay, so like that's what happened, and my that's my experience. So, um, if you want to build a, a proper, in my opinion, a product business on Amazon, you should own the brand. Okay, so own the IP. First and foremost, build a brand, 
get a trademark, own the intellectual property um, as it relates to the brand perspective. Okay. And my, if I was going to build a product business today, I would have to have a very clear understanding of what my competitive advantage is. Okay. Like I'm not the, I would never suggest go to Alibaba, go find a product that every find a me too product. Everybody's selling, uh, where you're just going to compete as a commodity. Like that's a really tough game to play in right now. Now, maybe it's five or six years ago. Like you could, you could do that sort of thing, but that market is saturated. There's so much content on YouTube right now around how to source products and build an Amazon business. And there's, you can buy a course, you can buy courses, you can do all these things. But at the end of the day, you've got to have a good product that people want that and you've got to identify some sort of competitive advantage that you have, okay? And it could be your ability to source, it could be your relationships with the factory, it could be you've got some, you've got a patent on this little widget, you know, that is unique to you. It's got it. You've got to be able to clearly define what your competitive advantage is, right? It could be a first mover, it could be a new product type, it could, it could be something. But if you want to go on Amazon and source some me too product and slap a, a brown box around it and a, a sticker and not have a, a, a trademark brand. It's a good luck. Like that's a hard business. It's super competitive. The costs are high. The ad costs are high. And there's a lot of people trying to do that. Um, so you got to do it the hard way. Like you've, in my opinion, you got to do it the hard way, source good quality products, find the white space in the market, clearly understand what you're good at and why you think you're better than than others. Um, and then um, we haven't talked about managing the business yet, right? But yeah, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's coming. So, so let's say that they've got, they, they have an idea, they developed a vision around the product, they define their competitive advantage, and they decided to go on Amazon. Yeah. So uh, the decision making process to sell on Amazon versus yeah. done through the website or Walmart or forget online, just go try to cut a wholesale deal with stores. So uh, tell me about that decision-making process for a business and what do you recommend and why? The, 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 one of the things that I like about Amazon and I, and, I, and I always have is it creates an environment for entrepreneurs to be successful, okay? So you, if you think about it, there's this, it's a platform, it's an entire ecosystem um, and my business channel key is supporting this ecosystem, right? And a product business can do the same. And, and so I'm biased clearly, okay? But on Amazon, the thing I like about it is the barriers to entry are super low, okay? Like you can go set up a professional seller account today. I think it costs you 30, 40 bucks a year. And there you go, boom, voila. You can be a professional seller on Amazon. Furthermore, the traffic is already there. You don't have to buy the traffic, Right. You, you can you can win by garnering a a share of the traffic that is already endemic to the platform. By the okay. way, look with the intention to purchase a product, not just any right. traffic, right? It's at the very bottom of the funnel, right? <laughs> and so, my experience in the past was we tried to we tried to uh, 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 spin up websites, right? But the problem with that is you've got to be a really good marketer. 
right? You've got to you've got to know how to educate the, the your consumer base on who you are, on your brand, on why your product is great. You've got to buy that traffic. And I think it's uh, unless you know how to do that, and a lot of people are really good at that, finding influencers, driving social traffic, doing all of these things. Um, it's hard. You've got to buy the business, right? You got to buy the traffic on Amazon. The traffic is already there, and you also have to buy the business on Amazon. Uh, but in my experience, it's it it's a little bit easier, and the it's barriers captive, to entry are a little bit lower. Audience, the captive That's audience, right. right? For, That's for right. Time. So I would start on Amazon. Right. If I had a stack rank it, I'd say Amazon one, Shopify or or dot com two. Wholesale is a distant is distant is is far away from yeah, that because that's absolutely. a tough that's a tough slog unless you know somebody or you know you've got some whiz bang unique thing that everybody wants. That's a tough that's a tough. Uh, rut. I agree. I agree entirely. Uh, I also tell people, look, the, the first of all, if you're building a business, you're building it to scale. And in order to scale a business, you really have to, the knowledge, you have to have the knowledge, the discipline, and the infrastructure to scale it. And yeah. Amazon will, will force you to do it right, do it, and do it right. Otherwise, you'll be out anyway. So That's right. Uh, so it's a, it's an, and by the way, while building your infrastructure, you're also generating revenue. Maybe not necessarily profits yet. Doesn't matter. That's right. That comes right. if you do it the right way. So I say, well, where else can you, A, discover if your product is good, B, build an infrastructure, C, make money in the process. Good luck right. doing that. And by the way, I get paid every other week. So yeah. where is that happening? No way, right? It's, it's, it's teed up, right? To, yeah. to your point, it gets teed up. The bearish entry are low. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that people don't necessarily discuss is like Amazon's fulfillment network and that infrastructure is so powerful. Like where else can you list a product, have built-in traffic, uh, have a built-in 3PL where you can ship your product in bulk yeah. and have it delivered to your customer in two days with free returns? Like it's like, it's unheard of. Yeah. Try doing that on your own. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, if, if you want to scale fast and build something fast, it's the place to be. It still is. So we're going to move uh, slowly into operating. So, of course, uh, once you are doing this, selling your product, it really becomes very quickly all about information, right? Because yeah. you send it to Amazon, without a doubt, FBA is the model you would recommend. Would you agree? Instead of FBA? Uh, if, if, if it's profitable for you, always yes, right? Sometimes, like so we've got, um, we've got clients in soft lines, right? That are selling shoes, right? And you, if they've got 5,000 SKUs, you can't ship all 5,000 into FBA. It just doesn't make sense. You've got capacity limits. Doesn't make sense. You've got to do a hybrid fulfillment model where, you know, your fast, your fast moving items are an FBA and everything else. Your longer tail has got to be fulfilled by merchant. But yes, if, if you can put it in FBA and it makes sense, it's not too big or bulky or heavy. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you get the prime match. So that means Amazon will handle the product, Amazon will handle order fulfillment, and uh, you just need to be now looking at the numbers. So what are some important numbers to watch? What are the, uh, as they call, analytics to stay on top of? And um, so for me, it boils, it boils down to the unit economics, okay, of the transaction. So... Um, 
And Amazon doesn't always make it easy to understand your profitability. Okay. Like that's where there's all these accountants or CPAs that focus on e-commerce or Amazon because it's still not easy. So unit economics, uh, what are your fulfillment costs? What are your storage costs? Uh, what are your, what are the referral fees or the Amazon toll? And then the big variable cost is your ad cost, right? And so the first thing I would want to get very clear on is what are my unit economics? What are my fixed costs? What are my variable costs? Um, and then, um, I mean, there's so much stuff. I mean, there's conversion rates, there's tr- impressions, there's, there's all of these things, like there's so much data. But for me as a business owner, I'm looking at the unit economics. And then the biggest thing is cash flow and understanding that if I sell this product, um, A, I've got to wait two weeks to get the funds. And B, if I want to keep selling more products, I've got to deploy all of that capital into buying inventory. Um, and I think for newer sellers that are building a business and starting from that, from, from that perspective, managing cash flow is the most important thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you're so right. So the way I break it down when I work with my clients is, first of all, you've got to have your financials in order. And that yes. doesn't happen by having a CPA do it at the end of the year. You have to be no. time. Your settlement reports have to be integrated. Your inventory has to be tracked real time on your no. balance sheet. Yeah. Because uh, and that ties back to the the, the 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 bucket. So basically, I have three numbers that I watch. What are your what is your margin on the cost of goods sold? So in other words, for every hundred dollars you generate how much are you paying for the merchandise part? So what is that yeah. percentage? So that is that cannot go beyond something. And then you have your fulfillment cost. What is the percentage again? Out of $100 you generate, what percentage? How many dollars going to shipping? And then you mentioned selling expenses. Selling expenses break down as your referral fees. And then you have your advertising. So what yeah. are those? So selling expenses... Uh, Amazon fees are 15%. What is your advertising out of $100? How much? So by the time you do this, no, you've yeah. got a percentage left. That's tiny, tiny, tiny bit of uh, small piece. So now yeah. comes the real uh, poison. The poison is you've got, let's say, 20%, which is a, a, a good enough margin, net, 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 after everything. And based on your top line, that may give you so much liquidity. How much inventory are you carrying at a time? So so if you are not generating enough just to finance the inventory, then, you know, you're dead. That's the cash flow poison, right? That's it. You're dead. That's right. So, so you're underwater. So even though, so that is when people always find themselves Wait a minute, you know, sales are growing, we're making money, but we never have any money because your model is broken, right? That's right. Yeah. Or yeah. you're not tracking, or you're not tracking. You don't have the systems, you don't have the processes. Yeah. You're not so so those things are key. That's that's uh, that's the part you're referring to. The other part is all about the listings. You know, how are the listings converting? What is your order uh, order flow rate? Yeah, your order velocity, you know, is it going up, down? Your average order value, your buy box retentions, all those things. Re- yeah, reviews, quality, quantity reviews, reviews quality of reviews. Feedback, sell yeah. feedback rates. Yeah. So, yeah. To, so how do you, uh, I mean, accounting part, do you handle the accounting part or do you expect the customer to do that? 
our, our clients typically do it. We produce P and L's for them and, and can send them information extracted out of their accounts, but uh, we're not CPAs. Yeah, we're not. exactly. We're not. So how about on the listing related analytics? Do you, uh, what is your take on it? And what are your, some favorite analytics that you like to look at and how do you track it? Yeah, we, we are, um, one of our core principles is around creating retail ready businesses for our clients. Okay. So optimized titles, bullets, descriptions, A plus brand store, uh, full image care cell, videos, infographics, uh, qual- quantity of reviews, quality of reviews, um, and in prime, right? Like that. Th- those are that's a core tenet of our business. Um, and so, what are, what do we like or what do we care about? It depends on the on the client and the and the business type that they're in. But certainly, we care about uh, organic search placement. Okay. We care about conversion rates. Uh, if it's a CPG or consumable, we care about um, new to brand metrics, right? Because we're creating an LTV equation around uh, generating new customers that are in the consumable uh, that hopefully are signing up for subscribe and save. Mm-hmm. Okay. So every client's KPIs are slightly different. You know, if we're dealing with a client that's doing 30 million a year, uh, they might really care about organic search placement. And they might have a cohort of new products that they want to get that, that they're launching, right? And so they're in the launch phase, the launch cycle. So we're looking at turns, we're looking at impressions, we're looking at conversion rates, we're looking at reviews. Um, but in general- Some, some yeah. of that data is not available through automation. So like, for example, conversion rates at listing level, at child skew level. So how do you, how do you get it? How do you use it? So- so that's a that's a good question, right? So we've got a lot of software that we use, okay? A that that fuels and powers our business. Uh, we've built our own software that we use that that fuels our business and creates visibility, scale, and efficiency for our teams. So we can extrapolate or or make those calculations on our own, or pull a lot of calculations from different service providers that are that are out there that are doing it. Okay, cool. So let's move on to the real core of it in terms of the operation, managing it, a team. So okay. uh, what is it, what are the roles in, in, in a team that makes an Amazon operation success? So, uh, so again, I'm an am- this is looking at the point of view of the Amazon brand, uh, maybe a, a, an earlier stage brand, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's trying to build a business or get to, get to a million bucks. Or right. even uh, some someone like that falls within your criteria, doing about a million or so, maybe yeah. certainly ten million yet. Yeah. So let's see. When we when we're working with a client, um, if I had to, if I aggregate all the work that's being done on that that particular business, right? Like, so you need operations, right? Ability, like you need somebody that can pick the merchandise that can label it for FBA, that can send it into Amazon, and maybe that can deal with problems that, that come with that along the way, okay? So somebody that can fill product. Uh, we need, um, we're doing, we're, we're managing ad spend, okay? So we need either, we, we're managing the spend, right? And we're using uh, humans and we're using software to manage that. And so from our clients, we need somebody that can give us budget approval. Like what is the strategy? What is the budget, right? So if that was internal, you'd have an individual that is spending the money, developing the strategy, 
and somebody that on the financial side that that can approve the the budgets right to where it makes sense and the profitability can be maintained would you recommend somebody new to learn it and then handle his own ppc i yeah absolutely if 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 you're an entrepreneur yeah if you're an entrepreneur um to a point okay to a point because you need to understand the basics um take the courses get the accreditations like you can do all of that uh i would recommend a new entrepreneur that's trying to build a product business to do everything right do everything now at a point you become the bottleneck and you're going to block the business from achieving its its results but yeah you need to have a basic understanding of what's happening because you can outsource it you can find a person or a company or whoever to outsource it but if you don't know the basics right or the core fundamentals it's going to be hard for you to understand what's happening uh, inside the business and whether or not the service provider or the software is doing a good job or a bad job. Yeah. So for a period of time, I would suggest the founder most likely or the, the, the founders of the business need to do every key function. So somebody for the paid campaign management and then uh, another role? Assets. Okay. We talked about listings. We talked about retail readiness. Who's doing your product photography, right? Who's doing the keyword research? Uh, to build your titles, to build your bullets, to build your descriptions. Who's producing the A-plus content? Okay, who's building out your brand store? These sorts of things. So pr- producing product videos, producing infographics. So you need somebody that can create digital assets. Okay, now that's one thing that you, can, you, you should probably outsource. If you don't know how to do that yourself, that's one thing that you can outsource. Uh, and you should probably outsource. Okay. And how about the analytics? If I'm a founder, um, I'm, I'm digging very deeply into the analytics, right? Into the data, understanding the metrics, understanding um, what's driving the business. What are, the, what are the, the key KPIs that I should be queuing in on to understand the health of my business? And how does that translate into my profitability, into my unit economics, into my cash flow? Like, so you need to have a pretty, you need to build a model. Mm-hmm. Right, you need to build a model that's pulling in the key data points that 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 are driving your revenue and your your growth and your your profitability and ultimately your cash flow. Yeah. So I mean, you laid it out. So you really. So what you are saying in the end is, be prepared to do everything, even though it may not be an area you like. You're gonna yeah. have to learn it. And then very quickly decide it's time to outsource because you should put your time into something better that will bring higher value to the business. Yeah, I think that's a t- very typical entrepreneur entrepreneur's journey, right? That's my, that's been my journey. Is you start you start the business and it's a one person or two people or three, right? And you you build, you build, you build, and at some point you get to a point where Um, you need more help, right? Like in my experiences, I become the bottleneck or somebody else becomes the bottleneck, okay? And they're the bottleneck because they don't know, like they don't have the capacity to do that particular job, which is okay. Um, or you, Or the individual just needs to be focusing on a different objective for the business. And there are two ways to go about it just that I can think of. So when, when that time comes that you are hiring somebody, do you... Uh, do you hire somebody who comes with the knowledge 
to basically take responsibility and then let them run with it, knowing what the requirements are, you know, what the outcome that they are looking for? Or do you go with people who will strictly adhere to what you put in place because you figured it out, you put in place, you know that that's going to work, and you just want them to execute that? Uh, yeah. You don't want. So which one do you go with? Uh, so my answer is, Nick, is it depends. Okay. It depends on where you're at and what you need at that particular moment in time. Now, ultimately, my, 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 my view on leadership and my job as a leader is to build other leaders and empower my people to make decisions. And so um, I don't want them to always toe the line. I want them to develop the business. And so at the end of the day, ultimately, I want them to be able to uh, advance the business and change our processes, break the company and fix it and, and change our processes. But at that particular moment in time where you need somebody, right? It, it, it depends how, what's your budget, right? What's your, what's your experience? Like if you, if, if I knew how to, if I'm hiring a PPC person and I knew how to do PPC, like I was good at it, but I just realized that I, I can't do it anymore because I don't have enough time to do it. Maybe uh, I would bring in somebody that has less experience because I'm confident I can teach that person and I'm confident that um, I can backstop them. Okay. Now, if it's something that I'm less familiar with, or I've got less time to deal with, or, and I need a, a larger resource, I bring in somebody that has more experience. Yeah. Right. So I think it just depends. And it depends on where you're at and the scale of your business because it changes also, over time. Yeah. Also, the seniority of the person is important. You know, some of some people are coming in that, to learn that you cannot, they, they just become overwhelmed. So you have to provide the support and the infrastructure. Yeah. What do I need? What's my budget? Do I need a leader? Do I need a manager, a people manager? Do I need somebody that can, I can coach and train? It just, yeah. it's, it's, it's never a one size fits all. It just depends exactly. on where you're at in the business. Exactly. So I uh, tell me something about Amazon policies. That, yeah. Uh, if you could ask Amazon to change in their policies for third party sellers, what do you think that would be? Um, so the, the bane of our existence, Nick, and it has been since we started, um, is something we call data validation. Okay. So we're managing a brand's business um, and they, they've had this, they've, their products have been sold on Amazon for years and years and years. Um, and we can never get their content to stay and stick. Okay. Titles revert, images revert back. There was some retail, there's some reseller contribution, you know, in the past and it was reverting back. Um, even though the seller is brand registered, even though they own the intellectual property, the IP, even though they hopefully have the highest seller score uh, in, the, in the matrix. Okay, so this concept of data validation is the bane of our existence and it's painful for us and our clients. The one policy that was specific to that issue is around clients of ours that have in the past had a retail contribution, meaning the product was sold uh, by Amazon, right? Via, yes. via Vendor Central, not Seller Central. So we've had a lot of clients like this yes. where they had a Vendor Central business in the past. Now they have a Seller Central business. And because at one moment in time, either they or somebody else, it could have been one of the distributors, sold the product to Amazon 1P. 
it's virtually, it's really hard to uh, overcome retail contributions as it relates to content. It is a painful, painful, painful process. As a seller, I used to exploit it. (laughs) I'm sure you did. (laughs) Everybody. Yeah. So if you are a good seller, because I was an Amazon seller and I was I was a reseller, I didn't feel this is going way back. Uh, yeah, I started in two thousand four as a seller, and that's uh, a long so, time ago. So, uh, but I did it for ten years, and and we were doing thousands of dollars per day, and all through automation. And of course, we were very powerful, and we would manipulate the titles, and then we would in fact. Put, we would replace the title for, let's say, 3.4 ounce with 1.7. And then knowing that it's actually going to say 1.7, but everybody yeah. would price it high because it's actually a 3.4 ounce listing. So, you know, we would gate the buy box. And before you know it, you know, we made so many sales <laughs> and nobody would compete. So, uh, of course, customer experience becomes different. But we were meeting it all. I mean, we were not doing anything wrong. We were just simply... Uh, Exercising the power, Amazon gave what they call merchant of authority, right? So, so and making my life difficult along the way, Nick. I appreciate uh, that. Well, Thank you. That, that was ten years ago. You know, <laughs> I don't Plus, being a reseller, you said it yourself at the beginning. It's no longer a good model. So, uh, this is great. So, you want Amazon to do something about this uh, content validation? If I, I had, a, if I had to simplify it, Nick. If I am the brand owner and I have brand registry, give me the authority to own the content that's published on the PDPs and dictate it. That's it. Simply. Well, you, you Amazon is littered with so many duplicate listings. So it's your job as the brand owner to find them, get them. Yeah. 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 Catalog cleanup. That's the job. It's hard. I work on it all the time myself. Uh, I know it's a, uh, it's it's very hard. There is no science behind it. It's someone really detail-oriented, good Excel skills, keep working on it. And then yeah. constant tickets with Amazon. <laughs> I, I hear you. That's a good business. If somebody can develop a software that can A, spot the issues and the uh, discrepancies in content, and then actually automate the ticketing process and getting that those issues solved, like that's a good, that's a good business if somebody can well, build it. We should talk. <laughs> Anyway, so this was great. So tell us a little bit about uh, who Dan Brownshire is. Where do you live? And what are some of your, some of your passions? I mentioned yeah. scuba, obviously. I want to know about it. And yeah. Tell me a little bit. Yeah, I live in Las Vegas. I've got a wife. I've got a four-year-old twins, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I'm passionate about scuba diving. I love golfing. Uh, I've gotten into Formula One racing in the last few years, thanks to oh, Netflix. Um, so. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I love building teams. Uh, I love building things and, and, and seeing them become something. So where does that come from? Why do you, why do you like building teams so much? I don't know, Nick. I don't know. May, uh, it, uh, I, so what, what happened when you were a kid? Uh, were you always alone and you were always looking to be part no, of No, I wasn't. I was an ath- I was an athlete growing up. I'm, I'm very competitive. Um, so I like to win, but I like to win in the right way. And maybe I'm being idealistic or that's my ego talking, but I want to do it the right way. Um, and so I get gratification by seeing 
the results of the work that we're doing and the and the the growth from our people and our staff and our teams and our clients like that's what gives me energy um and so so i don't know it's 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 winning right but it's winning the right way and propping other people up along the way like that's what gets me excited so what i'm hearing is i think it's not building teams you know what i'm hearing is when i hear you say i like winning winning feels much better when you are surrounded with people and share it yeah maybe that's it i've never thought about that nick so so if you like winning you know you, you know you win today i mean you imagine so you live all by yourself you don't have anybody around you and you win you win the lottery so what are you going to do you're going to go home and watch tv i mean there's nothing there's nothing it's no fun. It. but if yeah, you got no around you that feeling of winning is a lot richer, right? So I, th- yeah. I, th- I think that's what it is. You know, I think that's what it is in my opinion. That's a very uh, deep and astute observation, Nick. Um, and I've done a lot of work at Vistage. I, I just remembered a, a speaker that came um, and she basically placed a color next to you and your personality type based on, I don't know, some questions or whatever. And for me, it was about this idea of like <clears throat> harmony and community and uh, and being involved in an environment like that. So maybe you're right, right? So I'm taking my competitive nature and, and, and layering this idea of community around it and people and fun uh, as the, the mechanism. So I heard something that uh, actually does work. So uh, this person who does things uh, selfishly they asked, uh, so, but don't you, don't you love anybody? Sure, of course, I love my, uh, I love my uh, significant other. And so, what? Wouldn't you make a sacrifice? So, of course. So, so love leads to sacrifice. And then this person said, "Yeah, but I love him selfishly, because loving him makes me happy, and my being happy and being happy leads to my satisfaction." So if I have to if I have to make a sacrifice, no problem anytime. So so you are winning selfishly. <laughs> you know, it's I think by nature, Nick, and now we're going like super deep, right? Everybody has an ego. Everybody is a narcissist to some level, right? And so yeah, we're feeding our we're feeding ourselves and what we yeah. believe is going to make us. Happy. Well, I, I heard this. Uh, every leader in a position of uh, tremendous responsibility has to be a narcissist to a certain extent, because otherwise, how do you keep going? You know, you really have to think yourself so yeah. highly so that you can keep going there against all odds. And, um, you know, I ideally, you're not a narcissist, but you just have the determination and the persistence and the inner strength to keep going. So, yeah, the belief. And the grit that oh yeah the sun's coming up tomorrow and it's not as bad as you think it is, but it's also not as good as you think it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just that belief. Yeah. As, as Churchill said, if you think you're going through hell, just keep going. <laughs> you got a lot of good quotes, Nick. Got a lot of so quotes. tell us uh, how people can reach you. We're gonna obviously put your information on our website right. and the episode yeah. will go on YouTube, so it will all be there. But perfect. Give us your contact information. 
Yeah. So you can find us on channelkey.com. So you can, go, you can go to our website and find us and connect with us. But I, the best way for me is just follow me on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Follow my, you know, search my name, Dan Brownshire. Uh, we produce a lot of content. You can follow Channel Key as well. We produce a lot of content at the Channel Key level, a lot of thought leadership. Um, so best way is to, to connect with me on LinkedIn, message me on LinkedIn, um, and follow our content. Great. Thank you, Dan. This was great. You gave us a lot of insights and uh, introduced us to building company culture and how important and um, your clients are in good hands. Thank you very much. Nick, thanks for having me. Uh, having me. I appreciate it. It was a very thought-provoking and fun conversation for me. So thanks for having Thank me. Likewise. And that brings us to our uh, another end of another episode. And I'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.